You're listening to the Physio School Podcast, your guide to becoming a physiotherapist. In this episode, we sit down with Gracia Alanis, who is a pelvic and orthopedic physiotherapist, a clinic owner in Chatham, Ontario, and a PhD student at Western University. Yes, you heard that correctly. She is all of those. During our discussion with Gracia, we talk about why she decided to concurrently open a clinic and pursue a PhD, as well as how she balances these roles and responsibilities. We also dive into how Gracia became interested in PT, her path to becoming a PT, and finally, Gracia lends some helpful tips to both current and prospective PT students. We hope you enjoy this episode. What's up, future physios? Welcome to another episode of the Physio School Podcast. My name is Kashmadi, and I'm joined by my co-host here, the Canadian physio student, aka your mom's favorite physio, Anthony Pinto da Costa. How's it going, Anthony? I'm good, man. The intro never gets old. <laughs> man, it's been a long time since we've done a podcast together. I know, man, but I'm glad to be doing it today because after looking outside, seeing all the snow, seeing the car pileups, seeing everybody canceling their schedules throughout the day. It's a good day to do one. Yeah, crazy snow day. I guess it's closed for a lot of places right now. No way to get out of the house for us. Like right now I'm in Niagara and the snow is covering my entire car. There's no way out. Like if I open the door in my house, it's just going to fall into the house. So I'm just not even bothering. I'm not even stepping outside. <laughs> Luckily, today is a podcast day, though. So I have an excuse to stay in. And we have a great guest today, so I think we should get into our podcast today. So the focus of our podcast so far has been specifically geared towards talking about the journey people have taken to get into physio school and become physiotherapists. But Anthony and I get a lot of questions about what to do after physio school, because it's not only being a clinician, but there are many other opportunities as a physio as well. Today's guest is both a business owner and pursuing her PhD right now. I want to introduce our guest for this episode, Gracia Alanez, who's pursuing her PhD at Western University uh, in Rehab Sciences and Health Sciences, and as well is a clinic owner and is the owner of Radius Health Clinic in Chatham, Ontario. Welcome to the show, Gracia. Thank you, Cash and Anthony. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're really excited because like I said, we get tons of questions on this stuff and I'm not a clinic owner. Anthony's not a clinic owner. Reed's not a clinic owner. So we can't really answer this. We usually just defer the question to someone we know who's a clinic owner and we're not pursuing a PhD either. So when we get questions on this stuff, we don't know what to say. So luckily we have an expert in both areas here, someone who has experience in both areas. So it's killing two birds with one stone. So this is awesome. From now on, we can just say, listen to this episode. You'll, you'll learn everything here. It is awesome. <laughs> Saving us some work. For sure. Yeah. Hopefully everyone finds this in, yeah, informative and helpful and um, yeah, relevant. Awesome. So let's start with some questions. So the first thing we want to know is a little bit about you. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your clinic and how you became a physio? Sure. Okay. So a little bit about me. Um, so I am a first generation Latinx female. So um, yeah, my parents are immigrants from Nicaragua. So that's going to be important, I guess, when I talk a little bit more about my kind of um, pursuit to physiotherapy. Um, and in terms of the clinic, so Radius Health Clinic is a multidisciplinary clinic. So um, myself as a physio, um, 
Uh, so obviously I provide physiotherapy services. We have RMTs in our clinic. Um, we have an awesome naturopathic doctor who provides virtual services. Um, we have a doula um, who's currently on mat leave, um, but she'll be coming back soon. And uh, we have a personal fitness instructor as well who provides um, uh, personal fitness kind of sessions and also prenatal and postnatal fitness as well. So um, a whole host of populations are really kind of addressed within our clinic. Um, what's interesting is that it was designed in a very specific way, although we have the word clinic within our title, it doesn't really feel like a clinic. And that was done purposefully um, based off of my experiences in other spaces. Um, and just even the research on like different therapeutic factors, like environment is so important. And the types of um, patients that we see tend to have very complex conditions. And so um, I wanted to offer a space that felt welcoming, warm, and allow people to really kind of express themselves and feeling safe in that. So um, yeah, you you don't really kind of get that sterile environment. It is sterile, but it's not, um, it's not kind of, yeah, that cold feeling. Um, and I'm really, really happy to kind of hear that our patients love our space and feel really, really welcome. That's very cool. Now, why don't you take us through your journey of becoming a physiotherapist as well? Give us a little bit of background of how you made that decision to pursue physiotherapy and what was involved in that journey. For sure. So I did not have kind of the traditional um, kind of perspective in terms of physio. Like I didn't think I wanted to be a physio when I was, you know, in high school. Um, as I think most first generation kind of kids, um, you want to kind of pursue different professions that are going to really kind of be um, thought as being, uh, being successful. Like your parents really kind of potentially have certain expectations. I know I put these expectations on myself too. I think most type A people do. Um, so in high school, I actually wanted to pursue medicine. Um, I think for anyone who does really well in math and science and wants to pursue um, anything in healthcare or likes healthcare, um, wants to potentially pursue medicine. And for me, that was the case. And um, I quickly realized in my first year. So I decided to do kinesiology at Mac. Um, so Mac is really near and dear to my heart because I also did my physio degree at Mac. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I did, uh, Kin at Mac, which was, it's a science-based program. So, uh, the majority of my peers, um, I want to, so a, about a third of my class actually went to medical school. Uh, the other third did physio, uh, and then the last third just kind of did a mixture of either OT research, um, Kin or, or paramedicine was another kind of popular area. Um, so very, very clinical, but I recall having peers of mine, um, just starting to talk about like getting their, um, kind of different MCAT prep courses, like already scheduled in like the first semester of, of kin. And I'm like, oh my God, like I really had, I did not prepared myself to really kind of, um, do that. And so I, um, I decided before I kind of financially put my parents in a situation where they had to, cause I mean, I wasn't working at that time. I was, I just had my savings and, um, I didn't, and my parents obviously would have to make some sacrifices financially if I wanted to pursue medicine. So, um, I decided I need to kind of reflect. So I'm, um, I decided to actually, uh, shadow a family physician. So you're going to notice along my story that I shadowed a lot of people and received a lot of mentorship. Um, to really be able to make decisions that really fit my values and kind of philosophy. Um, so I quickly realized that medicine was not for me um, because I wanted and I was hoping to see more kind of interaction or at least a longer length of, of kind of patient interactions. And um, the what you see on TV is not what actually happens. Um, so I kind of romanticized the idea of medicine. Um, and so I guess in conjunction with that, like I, or concurrently, I was also... 
um, doing volunteer work at Mac Wheelers, um, which is a spinal cord rehabilitation center at uh, Mac with, within the kinesiology building. And so I did that through my entire four years. And so I was exposed to having conversations with people where they recently, like from people who had been injured for a long period of time and had come to kind of a resolution with their injury and kind of moved on and, and been able to kind of realize a new life with having a spinal cord injury. Um, and to people who had just recently um, been injured and, and kind of grieving through their previous kind of life and not being able to actually do the things that they thought they were going to do um, and then have to realize a new life for themselves. And so um, there were a lot of deep conversations that I would have with some of these clients. And so I realized that I wasn't, a, I, I really loved it. Like I really loved being able to have those conversations and seeing the impact that I had is, is in terms of providing them that space and that kind of comfort zone to express themselves. And I didn't necessarily see that that was actually an option within medicine, at least with, within the experiences that I uh, was exposed to, because there's just so much demand. Um, like they have to go so quick. They have so many people in their waiting rooms that um, I didn't know if that was the life I wanted to live. So I quickly realized I did not want to do that. And so I talked to my other peers who were looking at other professions that were not medicine. And physio was pretty much the one that everyone was talking about. And I'm like, you know what, I think I should look into it a little bit more. Um, I had known about physio because I played sports. So I think like most people, they kind of get exposed to physio in that way. So I played competitive um, tennis and volleyball and I got injured and I went to go see a physio. But interestingly, within my community, all the physios were men. Um, so I never saw a female physio and I just kind of saw it as being more kind of sports-based. I didn't realize, um, I didn't really kind of picture physio in a different way and, and all the different kind of clinical areas that you actually get to um, practice in. So I didn't know that that was even an option. So having those conversations, I realized that physios actually worked within kind of the neuro area. Um, and I actually wanted to become a neurophysio. So I, I decided to apply to physio school. In my second year, I obviously made that decision to then pursue physio, took the courses that I needed to take that I felt would prepare me. So within MAC, we're really kind of fortunate to have um, different kinesiology um, courses that actually allowed me to see neuro, cardio, and MSK-based classes. So I was kind of, I, I just wanted to prepare myself to be able to kind of um, see or experience all forms of kind of, I guess, within the field of physio. So I applied to two different programs um, for physio, so uh, MAC and U of T, um, and I was fortunate to be able to get in right away. And I chose MAC just because it was um, familiar, and I mean, it was only two years, so um, I didn't want to have to learn like a whole other kind of uh, be in a whole other city and a whole other campus. And so and I was just so familiar to me in terms of even having peers of mine who were in the, the kin program who were upper years. And they got to tell me so much about kind of, um, yeah, the program and anything that was kind of upcoming. So nothing was truly a surprise for me, which is kind of nice. Um, but yeah, so that's how I kind of got into physio. Did you want me to go more into what? like in terms of pelvic health and what got me to do that. Sure. Yeah. Love to hear sure. it. Yeah. So um, when it came to me making a decision about, so like I said, like I wanted to actually do neuro um, just based off of the experiences I'd had at that particular point in time. And then I got, uh, we got more exposure to kind of the different settings and what would be your role within um, kind of those different areas, those different areas of practice. And so I realized I didn't necessarily love, um, the kind of limitations in terms of your autonomy or scope within the hospital. So I wanted to have, and you're going to notice that, that I like to kind of poke my hand in like different pies. Um, and I like to just do a lot of different things and have the freedom to be able to make certain choices. So I didn't see that I was going to have that opportunity within the hospital setting per se. 
So I started to look more into kind of private practice or primary care. And at that time, when I was starting to kind of think about not being in neuro, we got a really kind of neat presentation by a few different physios in, in my first semester who were all in different kind of areas. And Daryl Yardley was actually there um, along with uh, Sinead DeForest. So Daryl talked about entrepreneurship. Um, which I knew I wanted to get into at some point. So my dad ha like owns his own business. So I've been exposed to kind of taking those risks. Risks. So I, that was nothing that kind of I was fearful of just growing up. Um, but at that time, I didn't think I was going to be doing it anytime soon. Um, but it was going to be something in my career path down the line. Um, but Dr. Sinead DeFore, who is a pelvic health physiotherapist and also a PhD, she's a researcher as well. Um, so she was actually, and she's been my mentor, um, she actually gave a presentation on pelvic health physio. And I'm like, what is this thing that she's talking about? I've, I'd never like seen it across any of my kind of research of the profession. So um, I was really interested in kind of learning a little bit more about it. So her description of that clinical practice really kind of um, spoke to me in the sense that it allowed me to live a life that I was kind of envisioning for myself from the very beginning when I thought about medicine. So being able to have one-on-one -on -one time with the patient um, and talking about really, really kind of um, kind of deep and intimate conversations about what's going on um, with their pelvic health or with their health in general. Um, the idea of it actually being private, because at that point within private practice and an ortho practice specifically, um, I had only been aware of having kind of like the, or be, I had only been exposed to practice that was kind of more in, in an open clinical space. So having all the plinths set up in like an open space, and it was just so, um, it didn't seem very, very private. So um, obviously when you're talking about some of these really, really intimate conversations or having these intimate conversations, you don't want to be um, just talking in front of other people. So the idea of having this kind of private space, it's one-on-one, -on -one, um, and also the length of time where public health physio tends to be a little bit longer in terms of your one-on-one -on -one sessions, I loved. Um, and so I wanted to go ahead and look into that. So immediately I like found when was my next day, like break. Um, and I scheduled a men, like a shadowing session with a local pelvic health physio and I loved it. So again, I like, I always tried to expose myself to those different areas for me to be able to make that decision. And so me knowing that I liked it, um, caused me to then, uh, sign up to take my level one and two in my second year of physio school. Um, for my public health um, uh, levels. So um, for anyone who doesn't know, you have to be rostered. So you have to have at least your level one within Ontario to be able to actually roster and say that you're able to do internal vaginal exams. Um, so that was something that I knew I had to do anyways. And it was nice to be able to then get a student discount. Um, <laughs> right. Um, but uh, the one thing I would recommend for people, though, is like schedule things way ahead of time if you're going to try to do that, because it was it's a lot to have to not only deal with your current like PT workload and then add a few courses on top of that that are totally supposed to be um, post-grad courses, then it can be a lot. But it was nice to integrate my knowledge um, at the same time. And I actually led quite a few conversations um, not only in clinical, like in our um, placements, our clinical placements, but also in tutorials. So um, with being at Mac, we did PBL learning. So within tutorials, we got cl different clinical scenarios. And so when uh, any pelvic health conditions came up, I was able to go ahead and do my little spiel um, and advocate for, for pelvic health physio. And um, yeah, I really, really realized that I loved it. And so that's how I basically decided to be a pelvic health physio. That's amazing. I love that story. And I, it, you clearly made an informed career decision throughout the years by, you know, exposing yourself to all these various different practitioners, which is great. 
But one thing I really love about your story is that you kept an open mind throughout the process as well. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people go into physio school, uh, you know, with this preconceived uh, notion or path or or goal. Like, I want to become a private practice physio, only work with orthopedics, and that's it, right? And you went in thinking that you're only going to work with neuro, but then you kind of let this whole process of uh, becoming a pelvic floor physio just develop naturally, which was, which was awesome. Um, before I ask you about your PhD, I just wanted to see if maybe you could touch on what pelvic health is, right? What some of the, maybe the populations that you see, because I feel Mm -hmm. like that's kind of that enigma in physio, right? And even Mm -hmm. some of our, our, our listeners, they may know nothing about it. And even when we teach about it in our courses, they're like, what is that? So maybe (laughs) just touch on that briefly, kind of the bare bones if you can. Yeah. Um, So, I mean, within pelvic health, you're really looking, it's still musculoskeletal health. So um, you're just essentially learning an additional set of muscles that you maybe weren't previously exposed to within your traditional physiotherapy learning. Um, So the pelvic floor itself is just a sling of muscles that um, is within the pelvis. So um, it has a whole host of functions, including Uh, obviously providing support to your pelvic organs. Um, It's heavily involved in your pelvic health in terms of being able to, um, it's involved within kind of the different reflexes of your bladder. So it helps you uh, remain continent, so dry. So anyone who's experiencing bladder leakage, um, we deal with a lot of uh, pelvic pain conditions. So whether it's, um, I mean, there's a specific condition that's known as interstitial cystitis or bladder pain syndrome. So having pain with um, bladder filling, um, we deal with a lot of those kind of complex conditions, which are actually more based within the nervous system, um, but affect the pelvic floor itself um, in terms of having lots of tension. So we see a lot of people that have low back pain, hip pain um, as uh, kind of some comorbidities or um, some manifestations related to those particular conditions. Um, I mean, within pelvic health, we also have different branches in terms of pediatric care. So um, if you're having issues with your child having um, lots of accidents, whether it's at school or at home, um, there are lots of, of pelvic health physios that have um, training within that particular area or um, field, which is quite neat because we don't realize how much pediatric pelvic health can actually then influence adult pelvic health. So the sooner we can kind of get to some of those issues and engaging in good um, behaviors for your bowel and your bladder, the easier it's going to be for you as an adult. Um, But yeah, so I mean, when it comes to pelvic floor physio, the majority of pelvic floor physios are MSK based physios. Um, And I mean, I personally think that you should be having a relatively strong orthopedic background, um, because just like anything else, the pelvic floor does not work in a silo, it works with the rest of your body. Um, So it's important that we um, also know about other areas. So having um, a background and an understanding of, for example, low back mechanics and um, the lumbar spine, thoracic spine, um, even cervical spine, because we know there are lots of kind of areas of intervention that um, are not intervention. There are lots of different um, kind of outcomes that we see within the neck that actually influence the pelvic floor. Um, But yeah, so there are a whole host of conditions. So I specifically treat um, and I see pregnant women. So I try to do lots within kind of maternity care. And you're going to see that within my, my research interests as well. Um, so I see a lot of women who are pregnant, uh, and I try to prepare them for birth. Um, and I, I don't say prepare, but, um, kind of educate and, and provide, uh, options for them to kind of look into or advocate for themselves when it comes to their birth experiences. Um, and it's also kind of like a pre rehabilitation too, right? So, 
kind of how we have a lot of evidence relating to um, rehabilitation of um, different joints. So for example, the hip or knee prior to uh, joint replacement surgery, we have evidence that supports us doing things or um, at least um, providing education about the pelvic floor prior to birth. And that way it can actually be influential in terms of how that um, birthing person then experiences birth and then hopefully preventing some injury to the pelvic floor relating to birth and then seeing them postpartum. Um, I also see a lot of people with chronic um, pain or persistent pain um, conditions. So a lot of people with conditions like endometriosis, which I actually have. And so that's one of the reasons as well that I was really interested in and also pursuing pelvic health physio, um, which endometriosis is a, is a condition where you have um, painful periods or it's associated with painful periods, but you can also have other persistent pain uh, symptoms. So um, it could be low back pain, hip pain, um, general pelvic pain. And then over time, that can become more uh, sensitized and, and centralized. Um, and then, um, yeah, and then postmenopausal. So a lot of women, um, just as we age, we have different changes to our tissues. Um, and so that can result in some women experiencing changes to their bladder health along with their pelvic floor. Um, yeah, so hopefully that gives a little bit of a background on it. Um, the one thing I will say for any of um, anyone who is like, um, you know what, pelvic health is not for me, that just... I mean, a lot of people get weirded out by the fact that in order for you to do your levels, which I, I should just say, um, you have to do an internal exam on each other. It's like, that's a part of the, the certification. I remember thinking like, I am not doing that. That's so, no, there's no way I can do that. Um, but what was really interesting was seeing and understanding what our patients go through, because it is a little bit nerve wracking, right? Like that judgment and just like that setting, like it just feels so invasive. Um, but to be able to go through that, you realize the things that actually were quite comforting that some of my peers did or said. Um, and I try to really make sure that my patients feel quite comfortable. But I thought it was a really humbling experience because um, how often do we actually get to be put in that situation where you really don't feel like you're in the control at all? Um, and yeah, it's just a very humbling experience to go through that. But yeah, so for anyone who's like, I'm not going to do that. Um, I just don't care for pelvic floor physio. Totally get it and totally respect that. But don't forget about the pelvic floor, even if you're not an internal therapist, um, because it's all connected, like I mentioned. So um, most of your anyone who has given birth is a postpartum person. So there are changes to their bodies. So um, even if you're not interested in pelvic health, I think educating yourself on what happens to the to the body after giving birth and um, those tissues are still important and could actually really help you in some of those clinical situations where you're like, I'm not sure where else to go here. It's not making sense. Um, pelvic health can, can kind of help with that and you can still be an external therapist in that way. That's a great explanation. So thank you for that. And you're welcome. let me just say too, I'm a big fan of my pelvic health colleagues. There's been yeah. times that I can figure out that postpartum uh, low back pain and yes. I've had to collaborate with some other pelvic health PTs and you know, worked wonders, right? Yeah. There's just that one aspect that, you know, I was probably missing out on, but, uh, you know, the combination of the two really helped out some of my clients. So that's, that's awesome. I mean, it's awesome that you're collaborating. Like I love hearing those types of collaborations because yeah, I mean, I think we should be collaborating. And even if you're not an internal therapist, like just collaborating in general within our field, I think is so neat too, right? Because everyone has so many different kind of experiences and areas of knowledge that, uh, yeah, it's awesome to be able to see that and hear that. Yeah, hundred percent. That's that's what the research supports. So, got to do it right. Exactly. Um, awesome. So, outside of your clinical work, can you maybe tell us about what made you decide to pursue a PhD? Because 
you know, you got a lot going on here for sure. So what made you add on that PhD on top of everything? Yeah. So it actually was based off of um, the clinical situations I was was coming across. So um, when it came to my patients who were prenatal, um, so they're pregnant, um, I found that we would, which is really neat to be able to be involved in that in terms of being like the the prehab kind of piece. but it's interesting with birth because you actually have no idea what the outcome might be. Um, you can have it be said that, you know, that person is going to have a vaginal birth or even their history indicates that they're likely to have a vaginal birth, but things are different. Every birth is different. So they could actually end up with a cesarean. Um, so it's neat that you get to kind of um, kind of coach them or counsel them through different kind of options, but you never know what the outcome is going to be. Then you see them that's those six weeks after. And so in terms of the narrative that I kept on finding for my patients really early on um, was that either they didn't feel fully prepared um, to deal with some of the outcomes of their birth. So again, like thinking that they're going to have a vaginal birth um, and then coming out and having a cesarean. Um, also not knowing about their options um, was a big, big kind of piece in terms of even mobility when they were laboring. Um, and so that's huge in terms of the research as well. So, um, basically what ended up happening is that for a lot of my patients, because there seemed to be almost like this cognitive dissonance. So, um, a certain expectation didn't meet the outcome that actually occurred, um, created a lot of almost like discomfort and trauma. Um, and so I wanted to understand why is it that I was seeing these certain, these particular kind of clinical patterns and also having conversations like them, not even knowing why a cesarean was even indicated. Um, and so a cesarean for people who don't know is a surgical, um, uh, birthing, um, kind of mechanism. So basically you go in through surgery, they, um, cut different layers of, um, tissue to go all the way down to the uterus and, um, they cut through the uterus, then remove baby surgically through the abdominal wall versus through the vagina. Um, and so that became, um, an issue for a lot of my patients where, yeah, like they just were very, very um, confused and almost like traumatized. But the issue is that they didn't realize they had that trauma until after they were already discharged from their OB, so their obstetrician or midwives. Um, And so I would have these conversations that were quite intense. And so as we know, the pelvic floor does actually have a lot of influence um, on different kind of structures and your, um, like your particular kind of emotional or mental state does influence what your pelvic floor is then doing. So I found for a lot of my patients where we're like, okay, we need to go ahead and relax your pelvic floor, but we weren't really addressing the trauma. And that was always kind of that thing that was coming back for my particular kind of practice that we weren't able to go ahead and address it. And um, I was able to go ahead and collaborate with a lot of different um, psychotherapists. And, and so that was great, but I still felt like I wasn't getting to like the root of the cause, which is more systemic because there's something going on within our medical system in terms of not being able to address the needs of these different birthing persons and making sure that they feel informed and they feel like they're in control of their birth experience versus having to deal with an outcome that they never really expected or wanted. Um, and so it led to me then asking the questions um, that I had, which ended up being more research-based. Like it wasn't clinical, it was more research-based. So why isn't um, the current birthing or maternity care practices really um, reflective of the evidence that we see within research? So um that was kind of my general question. And then I started to become a little bit more um, critical, which then led me to um, potentially. So the one thing I will say for my PhD is that although I'm a physiotherapist and I'm doing a PhD within health and rehab sciences, it's not actually physio based. Um, So my research is actually more based in, right now it's a little bit more theoretical, but I'm hoping to actually influence policy. 
um, and getting a better understanding of how we're educating our practitioners or our, our clinicians and how that education is then potentially leading to certain conceptualizations of health that are then influencing certain health outcomes, if that makes sense. Um, so I think for me, the biggest thing when it came to me pursuing my PhD is that I wanted to make a, a difference within um, the, how we're actually treating birthing persons and the outcomes that we're seeing within maternity care. Um, and the only way to really do that was to then do it through research. I wasn't really kind of getting too, too much, or I just felt like I was just like a, a, a hamster, like running in the same like wheel, like over and over and over again. Like it wasn't really addressing the kind of key systemic issues within our healthcare system. Very cool. And I think you come with a different perspective, being a clinician and having your boots on the ground and having the exposure and as well the relationships with actual patients who are going through this and then pursuing uh, a PhD. Because that way, you know, you actually see the practical implications of what your research questions and what your research will have, right? So I think that's a really cool perspective to have. Yeah. for those people who want to pursue a PhD, who are clinicians or who are PT students, what advice would you give them? And what is the process of then pursuing a PhD? Yeah, so that's the one thing I think is really, it's a really great question because for me, I was able to actually go into my PhD right away because I'd already published research based off of my um, uh, research experiences within physio school plus I also decided to kind of continue the, that research, um, those the kind of research initiatives um, as a resident, um, because I did find myself wanting to do more research and potentially wanting to do more research in the future. So I wanted to open those particular opportunities to myself in the future, should I want to go ahead and then pursue additional kind of um, education. So what I would say for anyone who's wanting to do a PhD, Um, first of all, when it comes to you being a physio, like you do have an opportunity of doing kind of like a mini thesis, right? So, um, unfortunately it seems like a lot of the programs are shifting towards, um, like systematic reviews to be able to do that, which I can understand because it makes it a little bit easier from a grading or administrative perspective. But, um, what I would tell people is choose a project that you really, really enjoy. Um, like it has to be a topic that you want to enjoy because ultimately what's going to happen and what I found for a lot of my peers is that they got research topics that they really had no interest in. And so they didn't think that they wanted to go into research. Um, and for me, I just found if I was, I was doing a specific um, study where I actually got to design it, like we designed it, we collected our own data. Um, it was really neat to then be able to interpret it because it was yours, right? So um, I got a little bit more connected to my research experience within physio school and it, it kind of inspired me to want to do more. Um, and then I maintained connections with my physio supervisors. Um, and I asked if I could go ahead. So I had some more clinical questions that could then turn into research questions. Um, and so I decided to stay on as a research supervisor or a co-research supervisor with, um, my previous supervisor. And so, um, doing that, I actually was able to publish another paper after the fact. So, um, showing that level of commitment to academia or research is going to really work in your favor because with PhDs um, or that particular kind of the admissions requirements, they typically want you to do um, a thesis-based master's because they want to see that you have that experience or the capability to then be able to pursue a doctoral um, degree. So um, for me, it worked to my benefit to have those publications um, and then obviously demonstrate that I was committed to doing some research. So try to find any opportunities to engage in research if you're wanting to do that so that we don't have to do a whole other degree. 
Um, yeah, so that's kind of the one thing um, is trying to make sure that you have those connections right away um, and also just pursuing research that you you really enjoy. Yeah, awesome. I've, I've obviously never done a PhD, but I couldn't imagine uh, committing to something like that, but not enjoying the actual research because it's like, what, four or five years, depending on how everything goes? Yes. Um, so the one thing that I do tell people too, when it comes to a PhD for physio, don't think it's going to increase your bottom, your bottom line per se. Um, you have to do it for the right reasons. So you can be a researcher without having to do your PhD. Um, so just obviously that's based more on off of your connections. I mean, I was doing that beforehand, right? But I knew that I had started to really become interested in teaching. So I do see myself as being um, a researcher, part-time prof and a clinician. And I think those, like you mentioned, Cash, like I think it's so important to be able to have that clinical experience to then understand the implications of the research and then inform your research as well. Um, yeah, so it's a really kind of neat piece. But yeah, know that you don't have to do your PhD if you want to do research. And I mean, it's nice to then be able to kind of get into the field of being um, a doc, like a, a PhD, because then you do end up getting the opportunities to become um uh, either professor, if you're wanting to be a professor or, um, getting to do research and, and some of the, I mean, we have some of the best institutions in Canada, right? So it's really, um, a great opportunity, but that's if you want to do that. So understanding what your goals are, are going to be important and, and knowing why you want to pursue a PhD. If you're looking for more money, I would try looking somewhere else because there's, there's a lot more you could do to make more money. Hey everyone, we just wanted to take a quick break from the action to tell you about our sponsor, KenHub. KenHub is an online platform dedicated to make learning anatomy an engaging experience, bringing together multiple learning techniques and using the latest technology to provide a fun alternative to boring old textbooks. KenHub's premium membership includes over 700 articles, 500 practice quizzes and question banks, 100 hours of video material, and 5,000 high-resolution atlas images that will help you learn all aspects of human anatomy. If you're someone who's hoping to pursue a career in physiotherapy, anatomy is certainly something you're going to need to become proficient in. Luckily for you, KenHub will help you get there guaranteed. If you're interested in learning anatomy with KenHub, click the link in our show notes for 10% off their premium membership so you can start learning today. Now, let's get back to the episode. Oh, most definitely. Yeah. So, you know, like we mentioned earlier, you got a little bit of a juggling act here, right? Yes. You got your PhD, clinic ownership, everything else that life throws at you. How are you balancing all of that? Um, it's not easy. Um, the one thing that kind of worked in my favor a little bit with the PhD is that I had to force myself to not be in the clinic um, and then kind of rely on, on kind of my team and, and trust my team to be able to function and operate without me, which I think is really important as a clinic owner, because when you're, especially if you kind of build your clinic from the ground up, um, and I mean, I started off really kind of being the only clinician and then I slowly kind of added more people to my team. Um, and so I was very used to being at the clinic five days a week, um, and being on, like I did every single role. Like I was receptionist, I was a clinician, I was, um, my bookkeeper, like I did so many different things at the very beginning. And then I started to realize I'm going to burn myself out very quickly if I don't start to kind of, um, yeah, get other people and, 
um, that I trust and, and also um, delegating more kind of tasks. So my PhD allowed me to then realize that I need to kind of get on, on that a little bit more and not just put everything on myself. Um, so having hard boundaries is, is key. So for me, I realized I cannot be taking on or seeing patients in person um, five days a week while doing a PhD. Um, so I realized I needed to kind of cut down my hours and schedule specific time for doing admin work as well. So um, making myself available only at certain periods of the day and certain days. Um, and then the rest would be dedicated to my academic work. Um, and so I think it was important to, yeah, have really kind of strict boundaries, but creating a team in the first place that you could trust to then kind of leave things in their hands when, when you're, you can't be there. Um, but also checking in occasionally too, right? So um, it all kind of depends on who your team is. Um, it takes time to build that. Um, so don't do it right away. So I wouldn't suggest doing your PhD and opening a clinic at the same time. So I did open up the clinic first and I had been in practice two years and when I started to do my, I think, yeah, like a year and a half to two years before I started my PhD. So um, give yourself some time before you actually kind of immerse yourself in both of these roles if you're interested in doing that. And what made you decide to open a clinic? Like, what was your reason for opening a clinic, especially so early into your physio mm-hmm. career? Yeah, so I opened my clinic like a year and a half after graduating. Um, and the reason is because, so I guess there's, yeah, there's quite a bit of a backstory to this. So um, I, my first job um, that I got as a resident, like I was really fortunate to be in a position where I had multiple offers. Um, and so I decided to choose a clinic that I thought that I was going to be able to provide the greatest accessibility to pelvic floor physio. Um, cause it was already, it's quite, I mean, it's a little bit more expensive than, um, your like kind of typical orthopedic or MSK based kind of sessions. Cause it is a little bit longer. Um, so I found myself wanting to make sure that people who really needed it the most were going to get access to it. So I was one of the first physios in Ontario to, at least in Southwestern Ontario, um, to offer, um, pelvic floor physiotherapy through OHIP. Um, and, uh, what I quickly realized though, is that that didn't tend to work very well for, for the company or the clinic I was with, um, because it did remove me from the floor. So when I was the only physio there, um, typically in an OHIP based clinic, you would have multiple patients present and you would have a PTA who would then see them. Um, and I would just be on the floor supervising or then doing my manual therapy or charting or whatever the case is. Um, but if I was seeing a pelvic health patient, I would be in a separate room with the door locked. So if anything were to happen, I was not as readily accessible to the PTAs. So, um, we couldn't schedule as many people, um, to be, um, in for, for OHIP based physio. So it became a little bit of an issue where I wasn't really getting as many pelvic health physios, uh, or pelvic health, um, like clients in when I wanted them to be like, that was kind of the the main reason why I wanted to go into that area anyways. So I wanted to have a predominantly pelvic health caseload and that wasn't really kind of being reflected. And so um, I just had a few issues as well with, um, I mean, depending on what companies you're with, with this one, I'm not going to mention the name, Um, but with this one, uh, outcome measures were huge. And so during the time that I was in this particular um, clinic, uh, we had um, a lot of changes to different policies or, regulations for family physicians who are prescribing um, opioids. And so for a lot of my outcome measures at this particular time, a patient started off with a certain kind of level of their prescription. And so by the time that they finished their session with me, that had changed um, sometimes in half. Um, So their outcome measures obviously did not reflect any kind of significant change. If not, they probably did like deteriorate a little bit more in terms of pain and mobility. And so 
Um, I recall having a, quite a few conversations about potentially changing the outcome measures I used um, to reflect that there would be a change, even though there actually wasn't. Um, and that was because obviously when it comes to looking at different government funded programs, you want to be showing that you are effective and efficient um, to be able to then receive that funding. And when you don't have the numbers to support that, it becomes difficult to justify that funding from a government perspective and, and operations perspective. Um, so I understood the rationale as to why I just didn't want to do it. I didn't, I didn't fit with my values or philosophy. So I was offered, and this is kind of the really neat part. So at that time when I was at the clinic and I was a resident, um, the, my supervisor was not a pelvic health physio. So I would not be able to practice or at least, um, start to, like at least be exposed to pelvic health patients at the time. Um, so I decided to get mentorship outside of that clinic. Um, and with that mentorship came an offer to cover a mat leave. Um, and so I was able to then leave that job. So mentorship is huge guys and like networking and just making connections. Cause that's how I was able to get kind of through a lot of, I was able to get access to all these opportunities. Um, so with that, um, like mat leave, I went from being an employee with, um, a very, like a, like I, a stable income. Um, I had benefits. I had, um, an educational allowance to then being an independent contractor. Mind you, I did have a, a caseload that was already present and ready to go, which was great. Um, but it was a different experience. So just that also, and I've done a few talks with Daryl Yardley at Western's program, um, where I just talk about lot, not every position that looks great on paper is actually going to work for you. So, um, yeah, being exposed whenever you're talking to an employer, like shadowing and just being exposed to where, or like the actual place you are going to get a job in is super important. Um, cause I, yeah, I quickly realized that was, that was not for me. Um, but yeah, so in this particular, um, space, I realized that, um, I loved the, so the place that I ended up going to that I got, I was able to cover this mat leave was a full female um, based clinic and it was, um, predominantly maternity care. Um, and it was, yeah, it was independent, uh, independent contract position. So I started to realize that I had the opportunity to make decisions about how I wanted to practice. Um, and I was kind of an entrepreneur at that point. I had like set up my Instagram page and, um, started to interact with people and start to do a little bit more that I wanted to do. And so, um, <clears throat> the thing with that particular position though, it was a year, but it was in London. And so I'm from Chatham and, um, I didn't, I didn't go to school in, in London, so I didn't really have as many connections as I, I would have liked. And, um, I felt more comfortable actually going, um, back home. And so at that time, when I was finishing up that, that mat leave, I actually saw an ad for a building that I always loved in downtown Chatham, um, that it was up for, it was open for lease. Um, and so I called the landlord and just asked if the place was available and it just, yeah, all started from there. And I realized that I was able to create the space that I wanted even though I was young, um, I, I mean, and that was something I did think about, but I think having that year of being an independent contractor gave me the confidence of being able to be on my own at least, um, and then build the space that I wanted to, that I wanted to build that was reflective of my values and beliefs. That's awesome. So before you opened up this clinic, mm -hmm. was your, did you have a mindset that, you know, it's going to be I have to have years of practice under my belt mm -hmm. first before I can do this. Cause I think a lot of people think, you know, it's like that five year, you have to make it to that five year mark and then, then I'm good to open up a clinic. Right. But I found that, you know, at, even after the first year you do develop that confidence and it's kind of, it's kind of surprising how quickly you develop that confidence. So did you kind of have that, that idea before opening up? 
Oh, I totally did. So, um, yeah, like I remember being in physio school and having Daryl Yardley talk about like entrepreneurship and I'm like, you know what? I do like that, but I think I'm, I need, I need a lot more. Like I was thinking I needed like 10 years of experience, um, initially. And so, but what I quickly realized is that I had to create a space that I was going to actually enjoy to like practice in, because if not, I was actually going to leave like the profession. Like that's how unhappy I was with my experience. So when I realized that you can do that, like you can actually just create the space um, to practice a way that really reflects your beliefs. Um, it was just a no brainer for me to then just kind of make that, that leap and step. I think it did help that I obviously, so I had a lot of um, support from my family, both financially and um, like, like physically, emotionally, everything. So I was really fortunate to be in that position. Um, I also obviously saved quite a bit myself. So I remember thinking, am I going to buy a house or am I going to open a practice? Um, that was kind of my decision to then pursue um, the business side of things. But um, the one thing in terms of the age piece, it was a big component. And I mean, I still struggle to this day sometimes being a young female. Um, like I've had situations where, especially when I first opened, and you have different people. This is pre-COVID. Um, so people would obviously like come in because I have, it's a storefront. So it's like right downtown storefront. So people would just kind of walk in. So you get lots of foot traffic. Um, and so people would walk in and ask for, for the owner. Um, and so I would come forward and they're like, oh, who, who, you're the owner? Like, it's just, it's very surprising to them to see a young female. So I remember I had to kind of not have so much of a chip on my shoulder with that. Cause I mean, there are lots of stereotypes. And so you do have to kind of fake it till you make it when it comes to that confidence piece as a young female entrepreneur, that it's like, you know what, like, I know there are these stereotypes and people might think that I'm not, I'm too young. So therefore I don't have enough clinical experience or my knowledge is just so it's not as vast. Um, but people quickly realize, like obviously seeing me having those sessions with me, um, that, that there's their perception of me was potentially incorrect. So well, hopefully completely incorrect if they had those initial assumptions. But um, yeah, so it's it's really about, and I think networking was huge too for me at that time, because once you get your face out there a little bit more, have conversations with people, those stereotypes are no longer kind of as prevalent um, when they think of you at least. Um, and so that was something that was quite big. Um, and then, I mean, for me to be in my hometown was huge because I already knew quite a few people, right, growing up there. And um, so, yeah, it was something that I think worked in my benefit and in, in my favor. Awesome. You got to love when you surprise those patients who maybe think, oh no, they're not going to help me. And then by the end of the session, they're like, wow, that really helped. So. Oh, for sure. (laughs) Especially for me. Cause I mean, I don't use like the only modality I have in my practice is acupuncture. So most people are like, what do you mean? You're not going to give me heat. So (laughs) a lot of people are are shocked. Um, but yeah, some of the benefits that we have. Yeah, definitely. Luckily, I didn't have that issue because I looked old when I graduated. <laughs> so they just assumed I had a lot of experience. They're like, oh, yeah, he's advantage. old. He knows what he's doing. Yeah, that? That's a great advantage to have. Yeah, great advantage. You look old. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's hilarious. Uh, one thing I was going to mention, too, is, uh, you know, you mentioned a lot there. But one thing you always circled back to was either working at a place or creating a place that aligns with your beliefs and values. Mm -hmm. Cash and I talked to a lot of new grad PTs and many times we're asked, okay, what should I consider about working at a place before I end up signing that contract? And, you know, before the pay, before the benefits, before the perks, however close it is to your house, that's what we always talk about, Mm -hmm. working at a place that aligns with your values. Because like you said, you were almost on the brink of leaving the profession, Mm -hmm. something that you thought you love something that you obviously made an informed career decision about, but 
when you're not in that right environment, and this is something Cash talks about a lot, even when we were talking about his story on his his podcast episode, it can just tear you down. So I love yeah. that you mention all that. Um, another question I had for you was, you know, say you got a new grad PT or even a PT student comes up to you and they ask, okay, I'm considering opening my clinic. What's like that one thing you would say to them before they end up doing that? Mm. Make sure you're prepared to deal with um, all of the hardships that come with it. So don't expect they're going to have people like walking through the door every single day. Um, so I knew like for, for me, it was a little bit surprising, even though I was in my own um, hometown and I had all these connections, I did all this networking. Um, it's some, it's a slow grow. So um, it's important to kind of be, have realistic expectations. So if you really want to have your own practice, um, I know for me, I actually still was working one day a week at like the mat leave. I just kind of slowly phased out to make sure I still had some income coming in. Um, and then my clinical practice, obviously within my clinic started to increase. Um, but yes, in terms of that kind of financial piece, just being prepared for all kind of scenarios is going to be important financially. Cause I mean, in order for you to work, you have, you need to, you need to be able to pay for, for food and rent and whatever you, whatever your expenses are. Um, so that's going to be important. And the other thing is it's so, yeah, if you're kind of, I guess if your goal is to make more money, know that when it comes to being an entrepreneur, it doesn't happen. It's not instantaneous. Like you're not going to get that instantly. Um, it's, it's a lot of work to kind of get to that point. You can definitely be successful and, and get to a certain kind of whatever your goal is in terms of income. Um, and, and that is certainly possible through that entrepreneurial route, but um, just know that it comes with a lot of, a lot of hardship and a lot of barriers potentially. Um, so just kind of be prepared for, yeah, all different scenarios. Um, and obviously having a passion for what you do. Um, and it's not just clinically, it's, it's about um, having a passion of being able to educate people in what you do. If you're someone who doesn't really love to have, um, I mean, which is kind of hard to, to think that because in physio, we talk to so many people who are very, very comfortable talking to people. Um, but putting yourself out there is going to be huge. So if you're not comfortable with the idea of networking, um, that becomes very difficult to then be an entrepreneur, I find, at least if you're thinking about having a clinical practice. It's different if you're going to just have an online space potentially, but I think still think networking is super important. Um, so being like understanding that you have to kind of put yourself out there. Um, and yeah, things are kind of instantaneous. Like there's a lot of hard work that goes into things before you actually get a return um, on your investment essentially. So, um, I would say those are the key pieces, like be passionate, but also be patient and have realistic expectations. And I, I've followed you on Instagram for quite a while. And I know that you do a lot of workshops and you do a lot of things, not only to promote your clinic, but also to promote pelvic health and awareness of pelvic health physio Yes. So for other individuals and other, uh, physiotherapists who also want to help expand the reach and awareness of pelvic health physio. What advice do you have for them to enable them to do so? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that I was, re I really loved within the London community um, was that uh, we actually had um, a journal club. Like there were all the pelvic health physios came together. And the one thing I loved about that is that we didn't have this whole like competitive like you're my competition, so therefore I should give you information. Like we all very much shared in our wealth of information together. Um, and so with that, what was kind of neat is to then be able to kind of see where are the gaps in knowledge or where are the gaps in kind of care. Um, and so that's where you can kind of then start to think about, okay, what can I offer to this particular issue um, that we're seeing? And so whether or not you then want to go ahead and 
and understanding like what do you feel comfortable kind of doing to be able to address that? Is it going to be something you want to do on social media? Do you want to go ahead and then do? So, I mean, in terms of social media, you have, I mean, Instagram's awesome in the sense that you have stories, um, you have reels, right? You can do lots of different things in terms of being able to um, provide um, information to that's, uh, that's going to be relevant, not only to clinicians, but also patients. Um, then we have, uh, I mean, workshops, right? So being able to like provide those um, kind of hands-on um, experiences. I know it's a little bit difficult with COVID, so things tend to be a little bit more virtual, um, but still being able to provide those particular kind of opportunities for people to also get to know you, right? So it's, it's for most workshops, they tend to be obviously cheaper than when if they were to kind of book an initial assessment or um, treatment with you. So um, it gets people the opportunity to kind of put their foot in the door and, and experience your way of, of um, kind of teaching or explaining things or your philosophy. And then, um, yeah, then there, then that's another way for you to also be able to gain some traction. Um, but yeah, in terms of also being aware of public floor physio, or just being in like in physio in general, like it's we're we're lifelong learners too, right? So always making sure that you're committed to learning and um, whether it's you taking courses, because I find when you take courses too, you find other people who are also interested in what you're doing and you can also make partnerships too, right? Like I've seen lots of my, like my peers um, kind of make collaborations with other people as well who have similar interests and sometimes they're not even the same field, right? Like you can take courses with other people in different um, yeah fields, whether it's medicine, personal training, um yeah and they've made um kind of yeah all these wonderful collaborations and yeah does that answer your question i think I yeah yeah, yeah. Okay. awesome yeah all right anthony do you have any other questions uh i guess my last question would be just i guess anybody who's considering physio these people haven't decided 100 percent yet that they're that they want to become a physio they kind of went through that pro or they're going through that process that you were going through maybe considering yeah. other careers um any advice for them or anything that maybe they should consider before uh, deciding on a career in physio that you'd, that you'd want to mention? Yeah. So, um, I mean, the biggest thing with physio that really, again, drew me to it as a profession is, is the flexibility and adaptability. So, I mean, you can change. I mean, I, for me, I went from wanting to go into neuro to then wanting to go into primary practice to then pelvic health. So, um, there's lots of opportunity, even if you were to like, for example, me as a pelvic health physio, if, you know, tomorrow I decide I don't really love it for whatever reason. Um, and I want to go ahead and work in the hospital. Um, I can go ahead and do that. Um, there's lots of different ways for you to be able to kind of explore different, um, areas of care without feeling limited. And then within physio, there are so many other ways for you to be able to contribute to the profession, not just clinically. Um, I mean, academically and through entrepreneurship. So, I mean, the one thing with entrepreneurship too, to keep in mind is that it's also fluid. So let's say you want to be an entrepreneur, but you're like, I don't really love the idea of opening a clinic because I mean, there's a lot of liability there. Like, um, I know for some people, they just don't want to take that leap and I get, I totally get why, but, um, being a solo clinician and having like a social media presence, offering courses, like you are an entrepreneur, um, and whether or not later on down the line, you want to scale up or scale down. Um, that's a huge, like you're able to do that as well. So don't feel like you, when it comes to physio, there's just so much opportunity to be able to change what you want to do. And based off of what your, um, interests and, and needs are at that time. I know for a lot of my like peers who, um, you know, get married, have kids, they're just, they're, they're like, I can't do the same things that I did before. So they end up changing things, um, that really kind of suit their lifestyle. So physio allows you to really change and adapt. Um, but I think that for other professions, it becomes a little bit more difficult. 
while still being so fully immersed within healthcare. Um, and also like the, when it comes to our field and our profession, we're really well respected. Like my conversations with physicians and midwives, like they truly love and respect what we do. So um, I think that's another important piece that I don't think we always talk about is I think our profession is in a wonderful job of being able to, um, I mean, advance. I mean, I think there's still lots of things that we can continue to do to um, be a little bit more evidence-based and more with the times. Um, but there are lots of, there are so many professions that truly uh, respect what we do and appreciate what we do. Um, so yeah, I think physio is a great profession. So um, just shadow people, like shadow as many different physios as you can. Um, and see whether or not it's a profession for you. Very well said. Now, before we wrap things up, how can people reach you or follow you online? Yes. So um, if you're wanting to look more kind of um, at the clinic, so it's at Radius Health Clinic on Instagram and on Facebook. I also have a personal physio page, which where I talk a little bit more about my PhD work um, and my PhD kind of journey, because it's not easy either. Um, and I try to be as, as honest as possible, because sometimes we we like to see things through those colored glasses. And so I try to be as honest about my experience as I can be. And that's at, um, at Gracia underscore physio on oh. Instagram. Give her a follow. All right. La sorry. Last question. Before you wrap <laughs> yeah, up. Yeah. And this is completely unrelated to physio, okay. but, and I'm not lying. Anybody who lives in Chatham or is from Chatham, I always ask them this question. Okay. Did you know that the first ever Hawaiian pizza was yeah. created in Chatham? <laughs> yes. Okay. Okay. I got it. I had to make sure. Yeah. I had to make sure. I always ask people that. You know, I you gotta, know. I don't know the heritage. Yes. Yeah. It's a yeah. It's a like. Although I hate Hawaiian pizza, but oh no. Yes. Hawaiian pizza is pretty good. <laughs> I'm team Hawaiian pizza here. Yeah, oh, Hawaiian's yeah. my number one, hundred percent. Well, you should try it out if you're around the area. <laughs> satellite. I'm on my way. <laughs> All right. Perfect. So really appreciate all that grace. So that was, that was awesome. Uh, you You're so welcome. honestly you present yourself in a really good way. And, uh, I think that's going to be a lot of great information for, uh, our listeners. So really, really appreciate your time. No, thank you so much. Awesome. So guys, if you want to hear more episodes like this, please consider subscribing, maybe even leave a five-star review. If you got some time, we'd really, really appreciate that. It'll help us put out the best possible content for you. And if you want to follow us on social media, just go on our show notes. We're in pretty much every social media platform you can imagine. Just uh, go to those links there and uh, we can chat from there. All right, guys, we will see you at the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Physio School Podcast. If you want to hear more from us, consider subscribing so that you don't miss any future episodes. And if you enjoy this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you wrote us a review so that we can continue to give you our very best. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.